CorporalNetwork.com. This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links. Welcome to the Tome Book Club for October of 2013. The Tome Show is a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm the co-host, Jeff Greiner. And in each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, in full book club style. And our book for this month was the second half of The Companions, the first-ish sundering book, and the latest in the chronicles of everyone's favorite or least favorite drow elf, Driz Du Erden. Later in this episode, you'll hear an interview with the author. But before that, joining us right now is our regular might-as-well-be-a-co-host, Eric Paquette. Hello. <laughs> and for November and December, we'll be reading The Godborn by Paul S. Kemp, the second part of our sundering extravaganza. We'll be reading the entire book by December 11th, knock on wood, in order to make room for the various holidays of November and December. And if you want to join us on this or any other book club discussion, please don't hesitate to contact us. Send an email or voicemail message to include on the episode at thetomeshow at gmail.com or calling in at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. Or you can let us know what you, that you'd like to be a guest, and if there's room, we'll welcome you on. So let's start talking about the book. So, the companions, huh? We're companions. We are companions. There's three of us. We don't have a hall. True. Yes, no. we. Yes, we do. Ha- uh, no. The companions of Hall H, right? Right. Of isn't that one of the the halls at Gen Con? Yeah. Okay, we'll call oh. that. A, <laughs> we'll call that us. I don't think Hall H is where we. I was trying to think of remember what the D and D room is now that they've moved things around a couple for the last couple of years. But in any case, we are companions. This book is about companions. This book doesn't have any companions on the cover, but the person on the cover does not appear hardly at all in the book. Right. <laughs> he appears a bit at the beginning. He appears a bit at the end. Yep. He gets mentioned a few several times. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing's kind of kind of about him, right? But. But yeah, he's, he makes very few appearances. Drist makes very few appearances actually in the book. Is, did that work out well or not? It, it depends on what you're t- looking for it. Uh, as I said in the first episode, I was expecting more. But then I quickly got rid and just focused on the, the characters of uh, Regis, Brunor, and Caddy Bree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of assumed going into it that we would actually have them all returned and reunited within like the first third of the book, and then the rest of the book would be you know the beginning of the new adventures of of this of the companions, right? And that's and that's so not the story I got. We ended up getting a lot of uh, growing up adolescent stories of these characters being reborn and reincarnated and coming back in a way that I did not anticipate them coming back. Right. And I don't think that's all bad. I think the fact that it took a different direction than I thought it was going to take, because I've sort of seen the, the the writing on the wall for the last five or six books, ever since Caterbury and Regis died, I'm like, oh. But there's all this foreshadowing and hinting that they're going to come back. So I don't have any doubt that they're coming back. I just didn't expect them to come back quite like this. And and, and being surprised is not all bad. I, I just don't know enough, because I haven't read... That many in the series, so... Yeah, that's what I was afraid of, because he said 
before we read this book, when we talked, we've talked about to him about it in the past. He said that this would be a good jumping on point, but the last book wouldn't be the last threshold because that was more of a, a epilogue to every, you know the previous twenty eight books. Mm. Um, but I don't know that I feel like this book is a great jumping on point. Yeah, me being the first book for by Salvatore, this was my first experience of these characters. So some of the references they they make, I'm not getting. Mm-hmm. I'm. It was interesting to see them develop and all that, but I'm also having problems of growing attached to the hunters. It's mm. he seems to be wanting to feel like, oh, these are old friends who are meeting again in a new way, mm-hmm. but that, these are new friends to me, and they're having this goal to go rescue uh, Dritz. I don't see in it the reasons why or, or the attachment, which is what I've been in the other book. I'm assuming all their adventures and all that that they had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think that's fair. I think there's a lot of heavy reference to that is supposed to make you care about certain things. But if you don't have that reference, I, I like I, I've, on one hand, I get why this is a good jumping on point because you are kind of being reintroduced to these characters because they're brand new, right? They're they're new and yet they're old. They're um, renewed. <laughs> they're renewed, exactly, right? Um, and so I can kind of see where this is a jumping on point. But you're right. I mean, there's a, a ton of references um, to what's gone on in the past, and it completely acknowledges and nods to those things. In fact, it acknowledges and nods the things. That's that happened, you know, several books old. Like it doesn't reference at all the last five books, hardly, you know, hardly. Um, right. Because most of those characters have been dead during those books. And to me, and I'm, it's going to sound weird, but the it feels like an overall, not just in this novel, but with the stuff with that's happening with D and D next and stuff, a referencing to old stuff that makes the new stuff feel very dated to me. I don't know, like the just some of the way things were described. There were occasional things that felt very modern, like mm-hmm. the RR bringing his son into the tavern and obviously taking care of his kid a little bit and, and stuff like that seemed fine. But then there would be comments like he's trying to escape the missus sort of thing that just felt oh, that's, like it was, it's, it's going back to an older day, an older culture. Yeah, that, that felt dated. And then the whole time the characters themselves are really still living their old lives, even though they're in a a hundred years in the future. And we haven't even talked about how the, how things have changed that much. Mm-hmm. Like we, it's only near the end of this book that we start talking about the, the differences that have occurred. And I guess maybe they're trying to say that nothing has really changed, but that's not, we know that's not true because of the spell scar and, and everything else. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think on one hand that they're trying to recapture some of the old feeling, right? And so they're trying right. to make it feel like the, you know a little bit like the realms used to be, and that's part of the whole point of we're even bringing back these old characters, but we're doing it in a different and way that that acknowledges that all that previous stuff happened. Um, we're not negating any of that, um, but yeah, I, I can I can see some of that. I I, I wonder I, like I keep going back to. How incredibly unfair is this whole situation to the new parents? 
Right. You know, like they were supposed to have kids and instead they had grownups pretending to be kids. And it's not even really – I mean it's kind of their kids but it's really not. And And he touches on that – that concept a little bit like every now and then the characters feel like oh like these pe- these people that raised me in this new life were great and i love them but i'm not the, really their kid you know they're it's almost like they I, I don't know that that in the back that's always sort of in the back of my head of this is totally completely unfair to them like they were supposed to have children and and missed out on that opportunity because you guys were reincarnated and and all of them, as far as we can tell, they, they did miss out on it. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. maybe Caterby's parents uh, could still have a kid, but uh, our, our dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wife, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I forget. I forget her name. Yeah, she's barely referenced. She dies in childbirth, right? In a horrific thing, and yeah, and then. There's the two parents, but they live under uh, a slave system, and on top of it, they've been kind of pointed out as uh, people who are practicing magic when it's forbidden. Well, and then they have – I mean and, – and they have the the odd situation of having found out that she was reincarnated very young for – you know right. when, when Cadabri Grukia was very young. They Like she's like what, five or eight when they right. find out that she's reincarnated? And so they miss out on that whole opportunity – to actually, you know, raise a child, which, I mean, I suppose is on, on one hand better because at least then your child's not deceiving you for their entire lives. Like, I mean, Bruner just lies to his new mother the entire time. Right. And just, oh, yeah, I'll totally be back. Bye. And, and it's like, well, I kind of felt a little bad about the fact that I'm never really coming back. You know? <laughs> well, yeah. She missed out on having a child and you were kind of a complete jerk to her for all the years you were there. And... Like, you're 200, 300 years old. You should know better. Like, grow up, dude. And I've actually felt that way through for most of the characters. I mean, Kateri is a little more difficult to, but particularly with Regis and Broner, Broner was like, the, it felt like they, even though they had this whole lifetime of experience, they actually had never really learned anything in their previous life about dealing with people and just fumbled through everything still. Oh, see, I I found that that Regis was the most adept. Like Regis, I th- I felt like handled himself the best. Though, and and it's funny that you say you thought Catabri, um knew how to deal with people better because and and I I raised this I raised this issue with, with uh, R. A. Salvatore last night when we interviewed him. Um, I had the issue an issue with her because she should she was be- too naive. Well, she, right. She should know. She should know that the road, yeah. to, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and you should never. She should never have made a deal with the shade. Right. You no, know? that like no. Like I understand she was in a really tough situation, but she should also be knowledgeable enough and and wise enough at this point, especially since she plays the entire book as being the wisest one of the bunch. Then she should have known that it's not okay to make a deal with the devil. Because you're going to get more powerful, and that's what you need to be. Yeah, I no, just, that I is have, not going to turn out okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I wasn't trying to say that hers was better. I was actually just trying to say that I don't even know what to make of hers. That I I can't comment on it. Mm. No, like, and, and and we talked a little bit before the, before the uh, recording, but I really like Caterbury because I feel like she's come into her own in the in this book, and 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 I think she started to do that before right before she died as well, because. For most of the Driss books, I always felt like she she was more of a background character because it's a 
Like, you have this weird thing where you have a party where everybody's a fighter, except for Regis, who's a rogue, who hides all the time and never really gets involved in the fight. You know? And it's funny, though, you say that, though, because you feel like Katarina's the one that's in the background, because Regis is the one that always feels like he's in the background of everybody else. Well, that's true, too. He, and he is. Uh. But he's so much in the background that you don't even realize that he shouldn't be. <laughs> You know, now I, I and I think that's part of the whole point of, of what he does, of what Regis does in this book is that he's like, OK, I'm done being in the background. I've, I've I'm literally getting my second chance at life. And this time I'm going to do it right. And I can respect that. And I feel like I feel like um, both Regis and Catabri are coming back as total and, and, and pardon my language for anybody listening with children, but but as total badasses, you know, on one hand, Catabri's got all the magical power in the world. Plus is a chosen of at least one god, you know, uh, and Regis has, has basically said, OK, well, I'm going to spend my entire life from, you know, four years old to till 21 doing nothing but training so that I can be the best, you know, whatever I'm going to be best hero I could possibly be. Which basically made him just skip his whole uh childhood and all that by his focus on but on his goal. Sure. But, but he but he wasn't a child. He already had a childhood. But he didn't really st- – he still didn't really develop as a person in my opinion. Like it, it's great that he did that. But the whole scene – the whole thing with his love interest just bugs the heck out of me and it feels like he never actually really learned anything. Okay, well, well explain that though so that the listeners know what you're talking about. No, no. I know. But so, so part of it was – is the introduction when they figure out that they're – they like each other. Because the, the thing is, when he does that, he doesn't know that she likes him. And she basically he basically attacks her. And then it turns out it's okay because in the end, she likes him. But even going beyond that, it's just, it's such a, like, schoolboy crush situation. As he goes on afterwards, like, he's swooning af- after her. Mm-hmm. But they've never really had a discussion about and he, being... And, and she's significantly older than him, isn't she? Right. Uh, in, in body years, yes. because it's so hard to understand. Yeah, it's a weird situation. Yeah. So, but like, there's no dis- there's no adult discussion of being in love with each other. He has to deal with other people also swooning over her. Uh, it's just so weird to me. It's a very romanticized style of relationship, which in fairness, he never really developed that kind of relationship in his previous life. Right. So, so in in that t- sort of situation, maybe he is really immature, and maybe that's fair. Yeah, it's a very teenagerish style of relationship where mm-hmm. they had that he and which is yeah, it, the the character char- due to the age of Regis in the soul base, mm-hmm. <laughs> his soul mentally. age, mentally or soul, I don't know, uh, almost. He should have known better to how to go for a relationship with someone. Yeah, but, than, but I don't think in the in the previous books, I don't think he ever had a relationship other than his friendship relationship with all with I all the companions. I actually think this is not a problem with the character; it's a problem with the whole writing style. But because okay. none of the characters do this, even Donna doesn't do it. None of the characters have, have any sort of adult conversations about relationships. No, although although that is not an uncommon writing style. Like I see that a lot. You know, yeah. Uh, you, read, you read Shakespeare. Most of Shakespeare's 
dramas could be solved if people would just shut up and have an adult conversation. You know? <laughs> you know? And Shakespeare is trying to actually comment on that a lot of times. Sure. Where this, there is no commentary on this. Yeah, In fact, Regis even says that he... he 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 was wrong to have ever second guessed Donald because she's not playing games with his emotions after she pushes him away at first from kissing her, mm-hmm. as if that wasn't the game. Well, right, and 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 part of me also like okay, now I have had a history of of uh, underestimating the author. Uh, underestimating Salvatore in, in much of his books and not giving it as much depth as I should have because I think he's doing a lot more intentionally uh, and with a purpose than I than I've realized in the past. Uh, now I don't know that that is the case here. Um, I think it's in other areas. I don't. Yes, I, I, I think that's true. I think there's a lot of allegory in terms of st- in the story and that kind of stuff that's a lot more deep than, and not so much in the relationships. Maybe. However. Um, Part of me did wonder going through, and I and I actually listened to the I listened to the audiobook version, right? But I actually listened to it twice because I wanted to make sure I, you know I was fresh, but I also wanted to finish it after we started it last time, so uh, I ended up listening to it twice. Um, and part of me wondered going through it both times. Sure, you have the brain, the mental capacity, and whatever of your previous life, but you're still in a in an adolescent or teenage or or young person's body or whatever. How much is their immature action? How much is Bruner's constant angst and all that kind of stuff? How much of that is that they haven't learned the lessons? And how much of that is, you know what? When you're that age, your body and your and your mind is constantly being affected by the hormones and the changes your body's going through. You know, so could some of the immaturity be explained by the fact that their their bodies are immature and that affects the way you think? Or am I giving? Or, or am I reaching? It's possible, but it doesn't explain the characters that aren't in that state. No, no, no I get the, that. No, no, yeah, I get that. Yeah, no, and, but then that's the problem. It's like I, I think a lot of it is just trying to figure out ways of dealing with what it would be like to have to go through – like Life again. Grinding through the early levels yeah. of World of Warcraft to get to the really good part, right? Yeah, only only grinding takes twenty one years, right? <laughs> and on top of it, everyone keeps talking about how you're a noob and you should uninstall. Yeah. <laughs> In my opinion, if that was the case, if it was a conflict between the hormones and the mental capacity, the person, the mental, should have commented on it, like of. of Reacting, why am I reacting that way? Why am I fighting my body in such a way in ways that I should not be? Why is it affecting my nose? But there's nothing that's yeah. stated about that. Although sometimes you're just irritable for you know weeks at a time, and that's just you know you're not you're not cognizant of self, uh, enough of yourself to be really aware to think about stuff in that sort of in- intellectual way. But but you, but Tracy's right; it doesn't explain all the other characters, oh. you know, who aren't in that in that physical state. But beyond that, um, we, we we talked about the first half last time. So so did the characters end up developing well in the second half? Are we happy where where they ended up going in the second half? They developed a bit, but I felt near the end it was like okay, I'm, it was like a balloon that just slowly deflated, and at the end it was like okay. Mm-hmm. I yeah. was kind of disappointed with the end. Yeah. <laughs> sure. 
yeah, I did not feel it had a strong end. I, and I was getting, I was getting really anxious too, as because as I saw the progression in my Kindle app, because I had the digital copy. Mm-hmm. It's like, when is this gonna wrap up, and sure. <laughs> where are we gonna go? Uh, well, and I don't know that he. I mean, like, I don't know that this is intended to be a self-contained story, right? This is supposed to be an introduction to future stories. So I don't. So I think you're right. I don't. I don't think it ends real strong because it's not. It's the whole thing is supposed to be an introduction and a beginning, yeah. not an ending. Well, but an introduction can still have a like chapters uh, can have strong endings. I completely agree. I'm just saying I don't. I think that's why it it sort of whimpers out. And, but, but it really whimpers out because I I don't even. I don't even remember the thing. So it kind of depends on you having read. Because th- mm-hmm. there was a previous book that dealt with him being there, right? Yes. The with last, all the, the other characters. Book. Yeah, th- so this book actually takes place concurrently with the previous book. Right. The, the so, previous book is what Drist is doing all, during all this time, and, and this book is what you know these other people are doing. And I think I read that book because some of the stuff seemed familiar enough, but it's been so long that I... I was like, oh yeah, those are those characters, but I couldn't tell you anything, and I don't understand what's going on. And oh, well, they're there now. And oh, wait, there's a wolf. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm pr- I'm actually pretty sure you didn't read this one unless you read it after you and I talked because I mentioned I, ta- I talked to you about this one, and and I told you that this whole book is basically an epilogue to the 28 right. previous books, and doesn't make any sense if you haven't read those books. Yeah, but it, but, it, but it also does some interesting things because it's all it's it's less about the story and the action and more about the character development. Which, right. which is unusual for a Driss book. Right. Now, yeah. that said, when uh, when we finished the first half, one of the characters we were really concerned about in terms of development was, was Bruner, mostly because we were getting annoyed with him. Uh, yes. We were tired of the angstiness. We were tired of the crisis of faith. We just wanted him to grow up and, and mo- get past it. Did he get past it well enough for you? Maybe. I don't know. It took too long. It took too long for him to get past it for me. Okay. And I, and like, I, I found that that after the second half, um, the story for several of the characters changed fairly quickly. Like I yes. thought Bruner, yeah. Bruner moved past his issues and went to – like I guess he developed new issues mm-hmm. is, is the issue. But he stopped being the angsty teenager and he focused more on the crisis of faith issue, which he then resolved when he went to Gauntelgrim. Right. Um, and, then realized, and then realized, of course, like all people in this situation would, as I expect um, – that he was the jerk all along and he needs to grow up. Yeah, well, he basically said, screw you guys. Yeah. I'm going to become what I should have became the first time around. Right. And I, I made the wrong choice. I'm going to undo it. And he went to Gonogrim. Which and, con- conveniently was on the way to where he was supposed to go anyway. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. But it, but it put it in jeopardy that he'd be there on time. Right. Yeah. But... It was kind of silly because I never really felt it was ever in jeopardy that he'd be there on time. I I assumed that everybody would show up at exactly the right moment. Yeah, yeah that was yeah. never really a question. I mean, he he tried to make it a point several times. Oh, they could die. They could make. They could not make it. Like he tried to actually. They had conversations and thoughts to specifically send this message of this could go badly. We can die. We could not make it. But I never really had much doubt in my mind that they were going to make it. Yeah. I didn't have a doubt, and I was slightly hoping that one of them would not make it, either injured and all that, just to actually, like, end in, like, oh, something interesting. Something but, unexpected happened, yeah. 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 But 
everyone at a time, everyone arrive, and oh, and there's a new, there's a surprise person who has come back to life too. Yeah, so let's talk oh, about God. that. I mean, that that was the the big surprise ending. It wasn't that somebody didn't make it; is it was that somebody made it that we didn't think was going to make it, right? Because Wolfgar, when they were in, I don't know, the the little afterlife place that Maliki yeah. created, um, yeah. basically said, "I'm not going back. I've lived my life. I'm going to move on, and I'm going to to you know, I'm done, and that and that's okay." Um, and then all of a sudden, without any foreshadowing or warning that that it was going to happen, he just sort of shows up and like in the epilogue. Like I actually had to listen to it twice the second time I listened through to make sure I heard that right, uh, that Wolfgar came back because it was just barely a thing. And it's like, wait, wait a minute. Well, that didn't make sense. <laughs> well, I guess it's kind of in a way foreshadowed because he keeps talking about him, particularly with when are saying like, oh, I, I bet he's having a fine time. Mm. That's it. I suppose. Forever. Yeah. But I mean, but, I felt like, I mean, Wolfgar had basically started drifting away from the companions since like book six or seven of of the the series, you know. So I felt no, like I, I don't know. Well, no, you don't. But I'm <laughs> telling you. So I felt like it was actually a, a realistic and natural thing for him to say. You know what? Yeah, I'm going to move on. Like I, my life has moved on past that those days as an adventurer. Like I grew up as an old man. I had children of my own. I had a wife. I had a life apart from you guys. Um, you know. This was not necessarily the most important part of my life. I have other things to move on to. So it, it felt right for me that he move on and not come back. Um, then he came back. And it's like, well, but what about all those other things? Like, uh, so that kind of bothered me. I, I'm just curious if you guys felt it was fair or not. But apparently you, it bothered me more than you. This was the first experience with Wolfgar for me. Right. And you show up at the start. Then, oh, he's in there at the end. I didn't really get to know him or know. So sure. to me, it was like, okay, he's a character that's there in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, that's just me then. Um, I did – it's funny. With some of the characters, I actually enjoyed their development in the second half, I think, more than the first half. Yeah. Uh, when I Like when I look at Regis – I kind of wish the first half with him in Aglaron would have gone faster because him traveling across and him joining the what is it the Grinning Ponies and him going into Luskin and and running into Jarl Axel and all that kind of stuff was way more interesting to me. Like I wish I wish we would have had some of the stories of him traveling with the Grinning Ponies and less of the him finding his feet and growing up in Aglaron stuff. You know, I gathered that Jarl Axel was a big. NPC involved in the previous stories. Yeah, Jarl Axel is honestly probably one of the most fun characters in the whole in the whole trilogy, or the whole uh, the whole world. I guess the whole series, um, because he's a dark elf. He's a he's a male. He runs a very influential um, house of only outcast males that are that run as mercenaries. But he's just he's he's sort of the walking Deus Ex Machina. Like something comes up, he's got a magic item somewhere that somehow is going to be relevant, you know. And he's just this weird, flamboyant character who doesn't fit into Drow society at all. He's not really a good guy, but he's not really a bad guy. Um, but you know, he's also kind of a jerk because he's you know he's a Drow as a Drow do. Um, but he's also friendly with Drist, but a th- you know, but a main a, you know mainstream part of Drow society. Um, and so yeah, he's just this weird sort of flamboyant character. Oh, so that makes sense why was because when he showed up, I felt this character okay this is just a character that just shows up voila it seems to be just tacked on yeah it was a reference for the rest of us yeah those who've read the books would like oh okay no but yeah Mm -hmm. yeah that's 
But yeah, so I thought I found like Regis's the second half of Regis's story to be way more interesting, but it didn't get a full half, like because the other stuff took up so much space. Right. Honestly, and I felt I felt similarly about um, I would I could have used another chapter or two of Catabri and Longsaddle with uh, the Harpel wizards, you know, doing the magic stuff. I thought that was interesting. Well, it was way more interesting than the Coven, where she didn't really do anything. Yeah, I mean, she mostly just. It was just, it is a weird situation too. It's creepy to me. Which goes back to that whole like she should have known better than to even hook up with them to begin with, but. Yeah, and I don't know. It was the I forget the woman's name. Adelaire. Okay. The okay. the head mm-hmm. the head diviner woman who taught her. Yeah, who was kind of like supposedly sort of motherly, but off, had this thing about petting her. Mm-hmm. That was, was very weird to me. Well, I think that's supposed to be weird and creepy and whatever. Yeah, but I don't. Yeah. How about the fact that that Catabri comes back as a druid wizard who specializes in fire magic? Like the whole "I'm a druid and I blow things up." Like that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't mesh was, real well. <laughs> I was talking to Jared about this, and his impression of Catabri has always been that she's like the the player that you have come to your table who wants a new character every few weeks, mm-hmm. but you don't actually want to create a new character. So you just add different, uh, elements to her elements to her, mm-hmm. like multi, a weird multi-class that you just allow. So that way the, the person keeps playing. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's an interesting take. I do feel like some of that has been, been, um, possibly Salvatore sort of consistently reinventing her, trying to find a way to make her in- more interesting. <laughs> Maybe. But I'm just happy that there's now a healer in the party because I. Uh. Yeah, the girl's a healer. <laughs> Yay! But I don't care as long as somebody's a healer. <laughs> Dang it! A D and D, any D and D party. I don't care if it's a novelization or whatever. If you don't have a healer in the party, you're not really a D and D party, are you? Well, I do care because she wants to be a warrior. No, she like, was. No, she didn't. She was a warrior. Yeah, and she still says she 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 still longs for that, but she's like, well, but apparently this is my chosen path now, so I should just oh, go and do this. I read that very differently. I, I don't think she resigned herself to doing that because she felt like she should. I think she wants to do that, but but every now and then there's a part of her that longs for the, the simpler days, you know? Yeah. I Personally, from reading it, I felt that Brunor with his fate in Morden and all that would have felt much better as being the cleric, healer, protector of, of the party yeah. type thing than Canterbury. Canterbury seems yeah. to be much more attack, which you can do a cleric that goes and just attacks and ignores healing. Nothing you can do. But, yeah. and, but and, most and, people, when people think cleric, they think, oh, heal me. No. And honestly, if you look at the characters who were more faith-driven prior to their death, um, it, it would have been Bruner and Wolfgar. Um, however, Bruner, I mean, part of his whole storyline is this big crisis of faith he goes through that he loses faith, but it's because he's thinking wrong and, and eventually his God sort of chastises him right. and, and gets him back on track. Um, and then Wolfgar, it was, it was all, always all about Tempest. And I, I, I wouldn't, I wasn't going to be surprised if he came back as a cleric or a paladin or something, um, cause everybody sort of changes or tweaks their classes a little bit, um, as they return, except that when we talked to Salvatore, um, he discussed that a big part of why he came back was because of his crisis of faith and he doesn't trust anything and he hasn't trusted anything since like book four, you know? 
Right. But so, so when Broner gets goes through and has a crisis of faith, a great way of eventually showing that he now has gotten over that crisis of faith would be like, oh, now to I come can back heal. as a yeah. I suppose to come back as a cleric that would have been interesting. You're right. I I don't disagree, but I'm just glad that there's a healer. Anytime there's a cleric or a healer in the party, I'll take it. But it's, now it, we have a three class multi class. I I don't think in her new life she has the 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 fighter classes at all. Well, we'll see. She I, probably still has the knowledge of well, the and, fighting and that she she actually, she actually specifically references that 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 she wonders at one point. You know, I wonder if that muscle memory is there and that I couldn't train up and 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 be able to fight again. Yeah, when she's an eight year old girl, right? When she's an eight year old girl or whatever, right? And and then she she says, "But that that was my past life, and this is who I am now, and I'm going to move forward with with who I am now." You know, I, I think that was less about her wishing she was a fighter and more about her um, yeah, re- recognizing. You know, or 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 accepting that this that, that this is her life now, and and I, and, and owning that, you know. I, I disagree. Okay. Well, I'll see where it goes and 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 report back at you. But yeah, I don't think she'll end up taking picking up fighterishness at all. Yeah, but all you need is one level of fighter to be able to do some damage. I'm not saying tons of levels. I'm just saying I don't, she's completely lost her fighter abilities. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we'll see it. I think she's going to go spellcaster. Well, of all course the way. not, because anyways. <laughs> I'm just glad to see a more rounded party. It always bothered me that the, the, all these companions. It was it was always a party of everybody's basically a melee fighter. Well, okay, everybody's basically a fighter. Caterbury was, was an archer, but but now we've moved um, past that. Yeah, I've never seen, I've never seen the importance of having a balanced party in whatever game I played. I just find it more interesting. Mm. Not, I don't mean balanced, but more balanced than everybody's a fighter. <laughs> no, you just hire a cleric, like, like you do. Like you do. Joining us now, the gentlemen and and ladies, is Jeffrey D. Wynn. What are we calling you now? Jeff is fine. Jeff. All right. Well, we got the other Jeff. Uh, who I neglected uh, again, actually. He was supposed to be on the first episode, and, and I didn't realize it, and so we didn't get him scheduled in. And then I totally got him scheduled on this one, and then forgot to let him know that we were starting a little bit early. I've, ah. been, I've been left behind and forgotten like I was a halfling. <laughs> like you were a halfling. Like so, you're Wolfgar. <laughs> so we were just talking about the development of the characters and the parts of it that we liked and the parts of it we didn't like. Um, we talked about how... Uh, well, I mentioned anyway, like things like I wish we had had less of the Regis growing up stuff and more of the Regis with the, with the grinning ponies stuff. Um, and we were sort of going back and forth with some of that. We talked a little bit about Wolfgar and the, and the surprise of his return and wondering what, you know, how fair was that? Um, you know, that's the sort of stuff we've been talking about so far. Uh-huh. Well, I missed all of that. You did. So, so, so fortunately... Share. I have a lot of opinions, well, that's great. <laughs> and I am I am more than ready to share them. Share them. Share away. Uh, all right. Well, first of all, let me let me uh, preface by saying I'm really not a big fan of of either Greenwood or Salvatore as writers. See, I I I sort of have this problem where every time I I hear these men speak about their books, I go, wow. These men talk so eloquently and and passionately about about their their writing and their and their worlds and their and they're such great people that I want to like their their books and I've met Ed Greenwood twice. He's a wonderful man. 
And then I read his books. And I go, oh. (laughs) I remember now. So this time we're talking about Salvatore and the latest Driss book, though. Now we're talking about Salvatore, the the companions. All right. So I, I cracked open this book. Uh, having having not read a Salvatore book in in many many years, thinking I was going to get a a rollicking uh, adventure with uh, Drist uh, de Werden, and uh, it was it was <laughs> it was audio, so you know maybe maybe like all the all the fight scenes would uh, would uh, not not seem seem so tedious when uh, 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 dramatically narrated, and um, it turned out there there's no Drist in this book. He's in, the, uh, which, he's in the intro in the epilogue, right? So um, <laughs> he's also in the cover. Not that I minded because uh, he's probably my least favorite character in uh, the Drist uh, universe. So yeah, it also wasn't as adventure packed as a typical Drist book was. I didn't. I didn't feel. I you know I both enjoyed and and hated this book. I don't know what to think about the fact that we seem to be going back to the companions of Mithril Hall after uh, Drist has already been introduced to a, a new set of companions and he keeps talking about how he's supposed to be moving on with his life mm-hmm. and etc 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 and here we are bringing back all the same characters that we've had for years and we're just apparently going to do everything that we've already done all over again. Oh but they're all coming with brand new baggage now. Now we have the Netherese to deal with and this lich that's chasing Regis and, and well, I guess uh, Bruner still wants to liberate Gontelgrim again, but uh-huh, right. deal with the orcs again. So he hasn't moved on, <laughs> but, but the rest of them Absolutely. have all new baggage. Right. And, and that's the other thing is it was, it was a pretty darn good story. Aside from having to go through all the characters being reborn as infants and yet being fully cognizant of, of everything that was going on as if they were adults was very um, hard to get through. Uh, and yes, uh, uh, Bruner's storyline was really not very I, – I don't like uh, Salvatore's dwarves. Um, so <laughs> – which, which I, I, I understand are, are a big part of his – Mm-hmm. Uh, universe. So, uh, yes. So my, I thought I honestly I I thought the the storyline with with Regis was my favorite because I, I think that's fair. I think it was mine too. Number one, I'm predisposed to like halflings because you are a halfling. I am. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, you've you've met me. You can you can attest to this fact. You're not that uh, short. And I liked uh, Caterbury's uh, story. Even though I, I I remember her as as the archer, I've mm-hmm. I've skipped a number of of, of uh, Driss books. Uh, oh, she only so sp- she I, only spent like one book being a wizard, and then she died. Okay, so it wasn't very long. It wasn't even one book. I think she so died I'm, halfway through I'm, that book. I'm not used to her being this uh, 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 Mayaliki priestess. Yeah, the Maliki thing. thing was actually new. Um, that was something I think happened in the interim while she was dead. Got it. Okay. Well, it was it was still very. But yes, but uh, Regis, I, I, I liked Regis's uh, storyline, uh, even though it, it kind of meandered all over the place. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're introduced to uh, this, this uh, grandfather, and, and he's this scary, like, leader of an, an assassin. What do you call a team, team of assassins? Guild. Yeah, guild, right? So we, we, get, we get introduced to him, and he's scary. Like, he's a bad guy. He's an assassin. He kills people for... For money, and then like halfway through Regis's story, there's suddenly this shift, 
and he's the nicest guy in the world. <laughs> he yeah. lets Regis into his 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 house, you know, lets him marry his his tr- treats him as his his own son. Let's Regis's you know uh, well, they don't marry do father, they? you know, live live peacefully out 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 his his days and from from the moment like regis comes into his house like there's no talk of like assassination that's true like um, from from that point on like regis doesn't have to kill anyone for 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 money i don't think we ever see his daughter do it like that all gets swept under the table and he goes from being assassin guild leader to you know Rich, rich uncle Willy Wonka. You know, it's now it's, on on one hand, I can actually buy some of that because there's a little bit of an element of when you're on the outside, we're we're a scary gang, but when you're on the inside, we take care of you like family. Like, so I can I can buy that that shit for money. No, no, no. I, so I get the I get the shift in terms of Regis's <laughs> perception that he goes from oh my gosh that guy's scary, and now suddenly I'm on the inside and I'm part of the family. But Regis that that part of Regis's story storyline has the same problem that I explained earlier that I have with Catabri that you're old enough and wise enough that you should know better than to make a deal with the devil. You know, because she does it with Shade and he does it with with the Paracolo family. Yep, pretty much. Awesome. But, uh, so yeah, and. Um, I, yeah, uh, you know, other other than you know, not liking uh, Salvatore's uh, writing style in general, and not liking his dwarves, and not being interested in Bruner's story at all. <laughs> I thought I, Bruner's I, story was good at the end. It was just it was just painful for the first two thirds. I, I I didn't. I, I guess I didn't completely hate the book. Okay. <laughs> um, well, that's I, good because the first time we we talked about it, your response was meh, and that was all you had to say. <laughs> It it has about as much to do with the sundering as something that that has nothing to do with with the sundering. Now that's a good question because I was gonna we haven't talked about that yet, and I was gonna ask: Did we learn anything about the sundering in this book, and what did we learn? I felt that it didn't. We didn't learn anything about the sundering in the book. I mean, it's it was it was like a hiccup, like like the world hiccuped and suddenly <laughs> magic changed, and then the story just went went on. Yeah, I mean, the magic thing was, I think, part of what we're going to see with the Sundering. And I think the Netherese are sort of like the narrators for the Sundering, right? Because they have a clue as to what's going on, and they're expecting it. But beyond that, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of Chosen running around, and that's a thing. But that wasn't resolved in this in this story. Like, And I mentioned in the intro that this is the first-ish book of the Sundering. But one of the things that comes out in the interview that, that we did yesterday with Salvatore um, is that the previous book, The Last Threshold, is has every, th- every bit as much to do with the Sundering as this one does. And the next book he's writing, which is not part of the Sundering branding, has every bit as much to do with the Sundering as this one does. Um, so yeah, I have, a, I, have a, I have a hard time with the Sundering branding with this book because it doesn't feel quite true. Yep, pretty much. All right. So – I mean, they have to divide it over six books. They do. No, I get that. I get that. But I think, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, this this one has very little to do with the Sundering. But I think it was more of an issue of if we put Salvatore's book as book one of the Sundering, more people will pick it up because he's sort of the big seller of, of D&D books. And then that'll lead people into the other ones, hopefully. Yeah. But isn't, isn't, isn't the Sundering, like, supposed to be, like, just, like, a, a, a backdrop thing? That, yes. Like, that's, that's what all the Wizards people keep saying. Like, it's a, it's, it, it's a thing that's happening in the background, like, telling a story about people living during World War II. 
Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's, right. that's true. Although I think I think Greenwood's part of it, which is the end of the of the series, is going to be a little bit more of and here's what the gods are doing sort of thing. I mean, we've 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 already heard what the sundering is from James Wyatt in in great detail. And like I don't I don't necessarily know that we really need anything more than that in a in a novel, maybe in a in a source book. Well, I mean, we we know what the sundering is, but we don't know why or how any of it's happening. So I'll, I, I'm I'm hoping to pick up some more of that along the way. And it's we'll magic, so, Jeff. Yeah. So for those listening along, if they don't know what you're talking about, where can they find it? Jeff, you said that James White has talked about this at length. Where can they find it? Um, I, I'm sure that the uh, that the uh, Tome Show somewhere in their in their archives has a has a uh, uh, re- recording of um, uh, uh, the Sundering pre- presentation. Does it not? Yes, it does. There you go. In fact, I think if you go to tomeshow uh, if you go to the tomeshow.com and you search for the the convention uh, coverage category um, mm-hmm. you will find all of our con coverage including uh, discussion of the sundering so there it is that so that'll be a good place to look so um, now some of us are listening or reading this as a return to the Drist books for a while. Some of this, this is our first one or one of a few that we've done. How likely are we to come back to these characters and stories in the future now that we've read this book? Eric. I don't have any inclination of going back to those. Nothing really is attracting me to get continue with these characters. All right, Jeff. Uh, my feelings on Salvatore and Drist are well documented, but as a, as a, <laughs> as a book reviewer, I feel it is my, it is my uh, obligation. Uh, I, I'm actually currently listening to uh, uh, Gauntle Grim hmm. in, in, in audio format. So, okay. So you're so you are exploring it more um, as as a because you want to be a, a thorough reviewer. And yes, tra- Tracy, pretty much. I'm out. You're out. <laughs> and me, you know what? <laughs> I've read the previous 28, 29 books. I'll probably keep reading all of them. I've, I enjoyed it, but I have, I have the background to, to where it all makes sense. I've been reading, it, reading these books since I was in seventh grade, so I'm not likely to stop anytime soon. I'm still enjoying it, um, and, I, and I, I think I have my expectations exactly where I want them to be in order to enjoy it. So, You know, I'd, I'd be happy about the whole Wolfgar thing. If it turns out that it's not really Wolfgar. You know, I thought about that. I considered that, that it wasn't really Wolfgar. Wolfgar. That, that would be like the, the only way that that, that that ending, like to, to, to save that, 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 that ending. Mm. I considered that and I, that is not the impression I got from our interview. I, I don't know, but that was not the impression I got from that interview. But I'll let well, – how about we let uh, the listeners go out and listen now to the interview that Eric and I did with R.I. Salvatore and uh, they can judge for themselves. All right. And now I am here along with Eric and we are talking to R.A. Salvatore, uh, author of The Companions. Welcome back to the show, sir. Good to be back. So, Bob, being as concrete or as historic as you'd like, what is The Companions about? <laughs> um, it's really the payoff for 25 years of Dritz the Warden and Friends. Uh, this is the book where I really wanted to make a statement that sometimes good deeds are rewarded. Mm-hmm. And so as Wizards of the Coast 
was trying to figure out how the heck they were going to kind of get the realms back to its roots. And with that feeling that you had in the old realms, that kind of happy but adventurous and dangerous but in a good way feeling of the Forgotten Realms circa 1990, 1992 or whatever, um, as opposed to the kind of the darker, you know, murkier, less defined realms that came through, particularly with 4th edition, I saw an opportunity and I went for it. And that's the Companions, hmm. uh, where it's, I don't want to call it a reset, but it really, the, the goal of the book was to give you that feeling again of freshness and and adventure in the Forgotten Realms. And paying off Drist for being a good guy, finally. Yeah, and that's that's an interesting um, jumping off point here because it's clearly, and, 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 in, and in ways that some of, you, I mean, I know you call most of your Forgotten Realms books Drist books, right? Um, but this one... Re- those are interchangeable for me. Even the ones he's right, not in, right. I call them Dritz books. Right. Now, this one really, really is a Dritz book. It's all about, in some ways, him being reunited with his lifelong friends. And yet, he's almost entirely not in the book. Right. So what's that about? <laughs> well, this book runs parallel to The Last Threshold. Mm-hmm. So if you read The Last Threshold, you know everything Dritz was doing during this time. And And that brings up another interesting point because in this book – we actually see an experience through Catabri when the weave returns. Yes. Which, because they overlap, that also happened during the last threshold, but to my, not, to my recollection, was never referenced. No, it was not referenced because the last threshold, when I wrote that, I really didn't know exactly the date and when we were going to do it, and... The person who would notice it would be Caddy Bray. Yeah. Okay. Who yeah. happened to almost die because of it, <laughs> because things changed in a bad time for her. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I don't know that Dritz would have noticed it in the last threshold. Efron might have, I guess. But don't forget that in the other part of this is the last threshold, if you look at the years they were sleeping in the forest, is when the weave hmm. came back as well. Okay, yeah, that's and and that was that was sort of where I was getting at. It was was it not referenced entirely because you know Drist wouldn't have noticed, or was it, or is that a convenient excuse to to explain why it was it what because you, it wasn't sort of decided yet? Well, it wasn't decided yet. Yeah, um, I had no idea it was going to be in this book until the second summit. I mean, until was the second no, the first summit when we finally started nailing down dates and then subsequent conversations. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think to put it in there, honestly. I mean, it's not like I'm, I'm not going to say, oh, it wasn't in there because they were in the forest. As it turns out, they were in the forest <laughs> sleeping, so mm-hmm. they wouldn't have seen it anyway. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I didn't know when it was exactly going to happen. I mean, when you've got six authors, a team of game designers, brand people, marketing people. Computer game people, and many of these people working for different companies or on their own in different places, all working on something, you have to be agile. So you have to use mm-hmm. a lot of um, squishy language when it comes to timeline. You have to, you know, you have to say, um, that happened a century ago, when maybe it was 60 years ago, maybe it was 130 years ago. When you start nailing down specifics, you have to be very, very careful when you're working on a world as huge as the Forgotten Realms mm-hmm. because those specifics will change, and they have. And you know, Then you look like an idiot. 
Yeah. Which brings us to the bigness of the realm and all that in the book and during the transition, what was the target audience for the book? Was it for old readers, new readers, a mix of both? It's definitely a mix of both. Um, for me, there were three specific targets, okay? Um, with every Dritz book I, I write or every Realms book I write, I know I'm going to have I, I'm going to lose a certain percentage of readers. And this isn't because of the books, hopefully, but you know they might be getting out of the military or going to college or getting out of college or getting married or maybe a child's being born. People go through different stages in their life. Sometimes they read a lot, other times they don't. So you know you're going to lose a percentage of readers. So one thing I've tried to do with these books over the years is make it so that every book is a jumping on point as well. I think you can pick up almost any Dritz book. And read it without having read anything before uh, and get a, a beginning, a middle, and an end of a fun story. So I always try to do that. In addition, because this is tied to the new edition of, D, of D&D and because it's getting a big marketing push, the Sundering is getting this huge marketing push as well, I expected many more people to jump in for the first time here. So my goal was make the characters interesting enough that they'll want to go back and find out what the heck this was all about. So that's, that's, that's one. The second part is the, there have been a lot of people who have been, uh, you know, less than happy with the direction of the realms. And so I think fifth edition is really an answer to that. And, and not fifth edition so much, but what's happening in the realms is really an answer to that. And finally, so for me, the long-time readers were getting very upset over the last four books, the Neverwinter series. They were, they were hanging with me, but they were like, I can't believe you just did that. Oh, my God, I'm crying again. Why did you do that? And I had to do that. I had to really pound them through the Neverwinter series and the Ghost King, for that matter. Although with the Ghost King, I honestly didn't know this was coming. But I had to pound them. Because, you know, dawn shines brighter after the darkest nights, right? Mm -hmm. And so I gave them the darkest night for the books before. And then the third thing for me, and this is the most important thing of, of all for me, a few years ago I came to understand that really the purpose, one of the main purposes these dark elf books, are, these Dritz books are serving, is that there are an awful lot of people who are now in their 30s, 40s, whatever, who when they pick up the new Dritz book each year... <laughs> feel like they're a kid again. They feel like they're back with their D&D group in 1990. I hear this all the time. I take that as a big responsibility for me and as a, an absolute joy in what I'm doing because that's how I feel when I write the books. When I write these books, I feel like it's the 1980s again and I'm in my D&D group with my friends. And that's a really, you know, that wistful nostalgia is really cool. I like that. So this book really was a love letter to the fans that have been with me for 20 years, 25 years, as much as anything else. And it just felt good to do it. And I don't know, but it seems to me that a lot of times we miserable human beings seem to forget that it's okay to just feel good about something. And it's interesting that you talked about um, using this book as a way to, to sort of help people reconnect with the way things used to be. Um, and yet you made a very clear 
decision to reincarnate rather than resurrect. Yep. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious if you could talk about that decision because honestly, it, it caught me by surprise. Like based on, on the foreshadowing and the things that I'd seen you doing in the last you know, several trilogies, I kind of expected these characters to return. I really didn't expect them to return this way. That was the point. You just answered your own question. <laughs> because, look, I had always, when, when I was told about fourth edition and what was happening and then figured out what I had to do, where I was going to lose most of the characters because of the 100-year time jump. Mm-hmm. and Or I was going to have to find clever ways to keep them around, like Adamus and Trary. Or I was going to have to write about Dark Elves exclusively because they live long, Right. I started plotting this book back in 2006. I think it was 2006 at Gen Con when they told me what was happening with the realms. I always figured it would be the last Dritz book I ever wrote. Because, look, I'm not, I'm not even going to try to get away from the fact that there is an element of Bobby Ewing shower scene in doing what I had to do. To write this book. Okay, that's that's a given. You know, I'm bringing back characters from the dead. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's Deus Ex. That's cheesy. That All of that applies. And I can't hide from it. And I knew it would be there. And I'm sure there are some people who are very upset with me. But really, I haven't been seeing a lot of that. What I've been hearing from a lot of people, it's like they found their friends again. Which was the whole point. And so I wanted to do it in as creative a way and meaningful a way that threw a new twist in it. Because can you imagine being a baby with full consciousness but not control of your new body? Can you imagine growing up again for someone like Bruner, right? Can you imagine Regis having this, I am going to be better this time, this kind of motivation that nobody gets the first time around? But because it's the second chance for him, the real second chance for him, from the beginning, to become the best. So that he can be a valuable member of the group. So I I put all of those elements in there because I knew that overarching from a distance, if somebody said, oh yeah, he brings back all the characters that died in the last five books. The natural response to that would be, ugh. Sure. Okay, I, I know that. I can't escape that. And yet the people who are actually reading the book and seeing how it plays out are finding themselves on the edge of their seats, are getting that this was a one-off due to circumstances that won't be replicated. So the tension seemed to have come back to them. And the vast majority, like 99 out of 100 Comments I've had, private messages I've had, emails I've had, have been overwhelmingly positive about doing that. And I think it's because I didn't just raise them and here we go again and reset the clock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it, it also allowed you to do a little bit of, of recreating of the characters, right? I mean, uh, and, and in some ways, if you want to think of it in terms of a game group, you you – rebalance the party because one of the things as a gamer reading the books or especially the early books the party always felt very unbalanced 
uh, now you actually have, you know, you have a healer and a magic user, both in the same person. But still, you have those things now, which are essential for a party. Uh, Bruiner suddenly feels like a barbarian rather than a fighter. Yeah, absolutely. It, it you know, for me, a battle, the battle scenes that I wrote in the next book, um, Night of the Hunter, which is coming in March. And now I'm almost, I'm more than halfway down the book for next summer. As well, because there were two next year. The battle scenes I'm writing involving this group look very different and fresh from the battle scenes of old. There's a few things I can do now. With a healer in the group, I can have them get the crap beat out of them more often. Because, you know, I can fix that if I have to. With Regis in the group now, he's not just hiding or trying to figure out how he can be helpful. He's taking a lead role in a lot of the things that are going mm-hmm. on. Um and there's some beautiful things going on with Wolfgar now that uh, I only hinted at in the companions, but it really come shining through in uh, the next book where you're seeing someone who's approaching life from an entirely different viewpoint. And I'm having a blast with it because it's exploring things that I never thought I'd be able to explore in the Forgotten Realms book. All right, now I was going to hold off on this question, but you brought it up. Okay. Wolfgar. Yes. I feel a little deceived. Do you? Because you you very clearly made the point that he had moved on, and it felt really true for him to to move on. Yeah. Uh, like he he had sort of been drifting away from the the the, the you know his this group for about 15 books now. So it made sense that he had moved on and, and gone off and, and whatever. And then he just kind of shows up in the epilogue. Like yep. I listened to the audiobook, and yep. the, the first time I listened, cause I, I actually listened to it twice. And the first time I listened to it, I didn't even catch that Wolfgar came back at the end. Then and, I did it right. And then the second time I listened to it, it's like, wait a minute, did he just say that Wolfgar came back? And I went back and re-listened to the epilogue a third time just yep. to make sure I hadn't imagined that. Nope. You didn't imagine it, but there were no hints or whatever that that was ever, possible to happen talk a little bit about that there was no like, foreshadowing that wolfgar was coming back and then he just comes back all of a sudden damn right there wasn't and that was by design and it was fun and i love slapping people across the face when they're not expecting it but more than that there's an absolute reason for it and i i don't want to get into it too much but the funniest thing that happened with those people in the rule of dune is that wolfgar i can tell you this much he's not sure that any of that was true he's not sure that if he had gone through that pond he would actually go to the halls of tempest he's not even sure that tempest is really there because remember this is a guy who was in the abyss being tortured by a demon who kept showing him his friends, the woman he loved, his children. That were, and it was all illusion so that he could torture Wolfgar. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Okay. He's been, so, he's, been, he's been dealing with it for the, the 15 books after. Right. <laughs> so when he's standing on the edge of that pond, he has the choice. Two choices into unknowns is what he comes to believe. He doesn't know if he goes in there, he's not just going to drown. And he doesn't know if he comes back, if the person that told him to do this and come back 
was making any sense or if he was just going to get thrown down and killed again. He has no idea. Wolfgar has gone through a process of self-actualization in a very condensed amount of time in the day, the hours he was in Aruladun. And I'm not going to say too much more because I don't want to give away what's coming with him because, like I said, I'm having a lot of fun with it. So we're going to get some explanation for that whole thing, though. You're going to see Wolfgar's attitude and you're going to go, oh, that's why. Is he a different class, too? Class? Yeah. Like how, um, how Bruner went barbarian? and Is, is Hedonist the class? No, he's a... <laughs> he's, um, no, he's, he's, he's a butt-kicking warrior who's having a lot of fun. Okay. I've been, I've been hogging all the time. I'll let Eric ask a question. Okay, well, since this is supposed to be the start of the Sundering series, what links to the actual Sundering are in... The Companions. Well, what the Companions' job was, and I don't think I would have even been part of the Sundering if this wasn't my job, was to kind of let people know that the world is changing dramatically, that the world's drift, the, the, the two worlds that collided are drifting apart. You know, um, Abir Toril is becoming Toril again. Uh, the spell plague ends. The heroes of old are being reborn again. And this was something when I when I was at Gen Con a few years ago, um, when I first heard that they they were like we need to do something with the realms. I, I had just given my uh, seminar at Gen Con, and James Wyatt was in the room. It was just me, James, and my wife. And he said, you know, I don't know what we're gonna do. We really have to do something about the realms. People aren't liking the direction, and you know, we're hearing them, and we want to do it right. And da da And I said, well, I know what you're gonna do because Ed Greenwood and I have been plotting it since fourth edition. And I told them what I could do. And what, what I could do was establish through this book that, and what I had been planning to do, what I could do is establish that the old gods knew the sundering would happen. And so the old gods plotted. And so in this case, you have Maliki plotting for the battle that had been going on in Neverwinter for the soul of Drist. It became kind of, it's a kind of a personal fight between Maliki and Loth. So what I'm doing here is I'm, as I'm setting everything up in the way of this big things happening, you'll see a lot more of that, by the way, in Night of the Hunter, where we're going to see what's going on in the Silver Marches in a, in a grand scale. Um, but no, I'm not, I'm not doing the Ed Greenwood thing where you're seeing the machinations of the gods. That's Ed Greenwood's thing, right? I'm, I'm showing you a personal story of a group of people who are living through a very weird event and dropping hints like the spell plague, the separation of the, the end of the spell plague, the separation of Abir and Toril. The old gods knew it was coming and prepared for it. The struggles going on among the old gods, those kind of things. And it feels like the Netherese are probably going to play heavily into several of the Sundering stories. I don't know, honestly. Um, I don't know because um, there's some weird things going on there too. But I, I, I mean, I would expect it. But um, I haven't gone into the outlines of the books to that or the books, the future books that in that detail mm-hmm. to know 
where they're going with the Nether East. I mean, I know where Paul's gone, and sure. I know what Aaron's doing. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I would expect that they're going to have – I mean – I know this, the the overarching story of the of the sundering the and the wars that spring up certainly would indicate that some weird things are going to happen with Netheril and mm-hmm. um, the city of Shade. Yeah. Now that also brings up a, uh, something you said. There also brings up another question I had. Um, this book feels as much like a sundering book as the last threshold did in a lot of ways. Yep. And it feels like, especially with your next book coming out this spring. It's going to be coming out in the midst of the Sundering as well. So, yeah. is, is this book any more a Sundering book than Last Threshold was? And and what did you say, Night Hunter will be? Night of the Hunter. Night um, of the Hunter. No, uh, yeah, no, it's not. It's not. I mean, and not. And, and I'll throw in another thing. I'll throw in the um, the comic um, cutter that mm-hmm. IDW is doing, um, which really begins the war in the Silver Matches. As as something that will be touched upon in the next book. That um, look, I, I'm. It's not like I stopped writing dark elf books in this in this long road of adventure that I've been on with these characters, and clicked over into sundering mode to write this one book. Mm-hmm. In fact, I argued that you can't just make the companions the first book of the sundering, because it's also the first book of the next trilogy. So the next trilogy is called the Companions Codex to tie it to the Companions. That was the concession they gave me. Because The Last Threshold and Night of the Hunter are far more related to the Companions than the Godborn and mm-hmm. all the rest of the Sundering books are. In the Sundering, all of the authors are taking their own characters, uh, whether it's the descendants of Erevis Kale or... Uh, Elminster and the gods and Eds are, you know, mm-hmm. they're taking their own or new characters. I think Richard and Troy are creating. Mm-hmm. They're taking their own characters in their own regions and detailing what's going on during this grand event to paint a bigger picture of the event. Sure. It, it, it does feel like even just having book one, book two, book three through six of the Sundering feels extra marketing ish, you know, in, in that way. I think no, but I think it's legitimate because if you if you're a big realms fan and you want to know how this whole thing came about and what the implications were in the realms, each of these books will give you different tastes of it mm-hmm. on varying scales, from personal level to my books to a bigger level, and when I go to the Silver Matches to the God level in Ed's book. So I think it works in that way. But yeah, I mean, look, these are the first hardcovers other than me and Ed that that Watsy's done in years. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're trying to, they're trying to get people, of course they're trying to get people to read Paul Kemp and Aaron Evans mm-hmm. and, and Richard Lee Byers and they brought Troy Denning back. Mm-hmm. And so of course there's a, there's a huge element of marketing in calling it the sundering, but it makes sense to call it the sundering because I mean, they would want my readers and Ed's, re- Ed's readers to want to read the four books in between ours. Sure. Why wouldn't they? And truthfully, I think that I want it as well because the way the realms used to be was that, you know, you had this massive base of people that read everything. And then it became so many realms books and so many years passed that people began picking and choosing and kind of go. So I, I don't know how many readers I share 
-hmm. with other realms' authors. But if you're going to make the realms be a world that's a living, breathing world and you're going to include the gamers who play in the realms and, and the people who read the realms, you want them reading more than Dritz books or more than Elminster books. And that's not just because you got – it's not just for marketing or money purposes. It's because the world becomes a bigger living world. And so a lot of the things, even in the Dritz books, where I, I'm referencing events in other places – People don't, that just read the Dritz books don't know what those other places are or what I'm referencing. If they did, the books would probably be a richer experience for them. I've told many people, go get the Forgotten Realms campaign setting if you want a richer experience on the Dritz books because you'll know more about these different areas I'm talking about when they're traveling mm -hmm. or when they meet people from other places. So yeah, well, and, and I really think that each of these Sundering books should be the first book of a trilogy of the authors writing it. That's my hope, anyway. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and it seems to me um, that the summit and the sundering event that, that has sort of spurred this level of collaboration between the authors um, has – well, you tell me. It, it seems like it, it's made you feel more comfortable – to spread your wings across the realms, you know, I know, in the, I know, I think you've told me in the past that you've sort of found a corner of the realms and, and done something there, right? And, and people just stay out of each other's way, no, and, I'm, I'm and that's definitely not what you're doing here, right? I'm going to go back to hiding in corners. Yeah, are you? Um, but Wait. here's what this did. You know, Wizards of the Coast said to me, "We've lost the feeling that camaraderie that used to be there. What can we do?" And I said, "You know, I used to come to Gen Con every year." And we would do Forgotten Realms author panels where all of the Working Realms authors would be up on that stage. And we'd all be talking about what we're doing. And we'd be riffing ideas off each other. And we felt like part of a team. Now when I go to Gen Con, I just do my own seminar. And Ed does spinning yarn. We don't have that anymore. Mm -hmm. And that was it, – it, the way it happened, the way this whole thing – I don't know. Okay, if you go back five years – I don't know most of the Forgotten Realms authors at all from like 1995 when I left. Then I came back in 98. But from like 98 to 2002, 2003, I mean, I've met Eric Scott be. I've had minor conversations with some of the other ones. But I didn't really know authors in the realms, like at the beginning. At the beginning, it was, you know, it was me and it was Jeff Grubb and Kate Novak. It was Troy Denning. It was Doug Niles. It was Scott Jansen. It was Jim Lowther. I mean, we knew each other. We became friends. We, we hung out at Gen Con. We did panels together. We talked on the phone. Now it's like me and Ed Greenwood and everybody else. But that's changed again because now I know Aaron and I'm becoming more and more familiar with her work and it's awesome. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Troy is the old school realms who's back. And Richard and I are friends. And Paul and I are dear friends. So it's coming back to that where we really want to build this camaraderie. And so when Dragon Magazine is doing a story on something that appears in my books, which just happened, instead of me finding out about it three years after it comes out because someone says, well, wait a minute, but that story in Dragon Magazine said this. I got an email from the guys at Dragon saying, hey, Bob, we're doing this. You want to write it? Yes. I want to write it. And so I wrote it. So 
it's really an effort to make the team a team again. And they're doing it really well. I, I have to give them big kudos for this. Because the atmosphere up there has completely changed. It feels like 1988 again. Well, I mean, I, I wasn't sure I was going to keep writing even in the realms a, a couple of years ago until this happened. And the first thing I did was extend my contract a couple of books and go up to two books a year mm-hmm. because I'm so excited about it again. Well, if it has the, the effect of the realm stories feeling more connected, like they're in a shared world, and, and also at the same time deepening the bench, so to speak, of authors, then I think it's a win-win. Deepening the bench is critical. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that the other authors, you know, the authors in the, in the years when the bench got lean weren't wonderful. I mean, some of them are the same people here. That's not even it. That's not what I'm getting at at all. It's not about quality. It's about giving other authors their due, mm-hmm. giving them the marketing dollars they need, giving them the exposure they need, trying to be inclusive. And that's critical, and it's good for everybody. Especially the people who love the realms as readers and players. Very good. So I guess I only have one more question left, and it takes us back to the actual story of the companions. And then we'll see if Eric has any more to to, to wrap us up. Um, it seems to me like – so the story follows the three companions as they grow up in their new lives uh, and then working their way towards Icewind Dale, towards this, this reunion – um, and it sort of, in some ways, if, if you look at it from, from far enough up above, it sets up a bit of a formula, right? All of them go through this, this growing up, this, this dealing with the being, you know, mature mentally, but not mature physically. Um, and then running into some sort of baggage along the way that they bring with them, but never quite resolve. So is that going to set up sort of the formula of the next several books of that baggage starts to catch up with them and we start to see how that, you know, these new stories uh, from these new lives interact with what's going on? Not immediately, but uh, well, yes and no. I mean, there'll be, <laughs> there'll be baggage showing up, but they got plenty of baggage they're about to create on the road they're on because the world's falling into absolute craziness here. So there's, there's plenty of adventure whether or not the road comes back and hunts them down. Okay. Um, but if you look at the, you say the formula, there were three, the three characters that I spotlighted had different roles to play in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, Caddy Bree was the tide of the past, right? She was the most no- knowledgeable about what was going on. She's the one that realized the spell plague had changed. She's the one that was tying the old magic system with the new magic system, Right. She's the one who was the most prepared for what happened. Okay? And so she's kind of the constant. Okay. She's very happy with it. She's ready for it. She's not surprised by it. She's more the constant. Caddy Bree has changed the least in this book. Regis is really answering the question of, oh, I'd do so many things differently if I knew then what I know now. Okay? That's the play with Regis. That Regis gets to live that fantasy that every middle-aged person has about going back to high school or college with the knowledge they've accumulated. 
right? Mm-hmm. Bruner, his story was in there to answer the critics who were going to be mad that the reincarnation of the characters cheapened the deaths of the characters. Okay. Think okay. about it. That is exactly what Bruner goes through through the whole book. Yeah, I think we commented on the on reading the first half that he felt a lot like an angsty teenager for the first half of the book. I think his angst goes deeper than that, though. Yeah, probably. To, to, I mean, to me, Bruner's like, well, what was, what's the point? Are we just playthings? So mm-hmm. I do all this stuff, and I'm ready to go to my reward, and you say, hey, go back and do it again? What, for your enjoyment? And he can't get past that for a long time. Mm-hmm. And part of that was because I knew that people were going to come to me and say, well, if you're just going to bring them back, where's the tension? And Bruner answers that. Okay. You know, I thought I was done. <laughs> but you reminded me of something else that I was wondering about. Okay. Caterbri is the constant. She's the knowledgeable one. She's the wise one almost of the group, right? So you, she has pretty good instincts. It, yeah, I'll it, give her that. It feels to me like she would understand the concept of the road to hell being paved with good intentions. Why would she ever make a deal to work with the Shade Enclave? <laughs> I don't think she actually made a deal to work with the Shade Enclave. Circumstances brought her to the coven. She didn't have a lot of choice on it. And then from her perspective... She was getting the kind of training she was going to need to go forward. Because she wasn't a very powerful mage at all when the spell plague hit her. She was a, a, an acolyte. You know, she was a beginner. So she needed the training. They offered her the training. Take it. Yeah, that's the those people good, she was with weren't evil. That's those good intentions, though. Yeah, but <laughs> the lady of the coven wasn't evil. She wasn't being asked to do evil things. What was she going to do? She couldn't get away. She tried once just to go down to see her mother, and mm-hmm. Alvia was there waiting for her, remember? Yeah, I just, I just remember as soon as she started falling in with, with, with the coven, my, my instinct was, oh, you know that's going to come back and bite you, right? I mean, but it didn't. <laughs> it feels like it's going to. It, it, that, that, that story doesn't feel like it's done. That's part of that baggage. That, it might. That, yeah, that's part of that baggage that started this whole conversation, right? No, it might. It might. But I, I would also say to you that the Netherese have a lot more to worry about than whether or not Caddy Bree got away. And really, if you look at where it went from there, what she really provided more than anything else was for the for the lords, the Drago and and um, – Oh, good lord, I'm old. My, it just fell out of my brain. Uh, Paris, is that it? Yeah, Paris Ulfbinder. The, um, she provided an insight into something they were very curious about. Mm-hmm. But they're almost like just an audience at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and a very interested audience. And, and again, you know, here's the thing. One of the things that bothered me about the realms when they decided that every race could be a player character was... Um, taking the embodiment of evil out of orcs. Okay? One of the things that bothered me a lot about where fantasy has gone in the last 10 years, and it's mostly because of computer games. I mean, I'm not going to kid myself here. That's why, because they look cool. Is that one of the things I used to love about fantasy was the fact that it was action without guilt. Right? Right? 
An orc was the embodiment of evil, so you take out your sword and you disembody evil. It's that simple. Now, I always had fun playing with that, like in the story Dark Mirror, when Dritz meets the goblin, who was a slave. And then Dritz begins to question, well, if I'm a drow, but I'm not like them, maybe the orcs and goblins aren't like them, which leads them to the Treaty of Garam's Gorge, which may have been a huge mistake, and I'll leave it at that, or, or a nefarious long-term thinking plot on the side of a certain god that I'll, I'll leave it at that. But the Netherese, the drow, um, you know, the, the, the humans, the dwarves, the elves, is there a difference between them and goblin kin, an evil giant kind? Okay, is there a difference? I mean, are the drow inherently evil? Are they embodiments of evil? Or is it their perverse culture that pushes them that way? Okay? And this is a big question for D&D mm -hmm. and for fantasy in general. Because if you're going to believe that about orcs and goblins as well, suddenly it's no longer war without guilt, is it? Well, it's interesting that you that you say that because I would say I would probably say that you and Drist are, are a big driving force behind why some of that happened. Uh, unintentionally, <laughs> I, I understand. Like I the best monster in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> um, okay. Never meant to do it. Um, <sighs> so yeah, but I, I wouldn't disagree with you. Sure. I wouldn't disagree with you. Uh, however, you know you're not going to see people playing half dragons and orcs in in my campaigns. Sure. Eric, do you have any last questions? I do have one. Uh, is there any links between the companions, well, in the companions with the adventure that's coming up, the legacy of the Crystal Sharp? Um, no. No. Okay. Uh, oh, pretty, that's pretty definitive. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm trying to remember that I didn't write that. I... I I did kind of an edit on it, and I came up with some ideas for it, and I worked with them on it. But I was I was just kind of looking at it from a ten thousand foot level, and I don't remember all the details. I got so much going on right now. Sure. I don't remember all the details, honestly, of of that. So I'm trying to figure out when it was. Certainly, it has to do with some of the things that are going on in the Sundering, sure. Like um, the change of chosen from being like this very. You know, in the old realms, a chosen was someone really special, right? Mm -hmm. Chosen was like illustrial or, you know, someone really <laughs> special. In the new realms, there are many chosen. They're almost like favored people of the gods. Mm -hmm. And so you'll see some of that in the legacy of the Crystal Shard. And I, I'm trying to remember, but I don't think there are any specific ties to the companions. Okay. There might be references here or there about some of the characters, but I, I, I honestly don't remember. My brain's leaking between <laughs> finish, you know, working on the book for the Kickstarter that was successful, yay, for Demon Wars, and writing two books a year for Wizards and trying to build a little business here with my sons for the Demon Wars environment that we're building. Um, and going to Fenway Park for great playoff games. <laughs> I'm like losing my mind, I think, right now. But in a really great way. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Well, then, I guess that's uh, the end of our questions. Eric, you're, sure you're done? 
I'm done. All right. Then thank you again for joining us, and we'll probably uh, be chatting with you again later, right? Um, sure. I got a book coming in March. Very good. We'll look at that. <laughs> All right. Well, we are back. That was our interview with R.A. Salvatore. I want to thank him for joining us. I also want to thank Eric M. Paquette and Jeff Wynn. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. I have my 15 seconds of fame. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't 15 seconds. It was 12 minutes by the clock. <laughs> I also want to thank our listeners, and I want to thank you specifically not only for listening, but for going out and reviewing us on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use, and also for using our affiliate links at D&D Classics and Amazon. Go to thetomeshow.com and click through the links, and you and we get credit for that. And if you'd like to contact us for any reason, you can send us an email at thetomeshow at gmail.com, or call us on our biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And if you want to find show notes for this show or any of the other great Tome Show shows, go over to thetomeshow.com. And that is our thoughts on The Companions. Next month, we'll be reading The Godborn by Paul S. Kemp. Uh, and actually, it's not even next month. It's next month and a half-ish. We're going to read it, the entire book, by December 11th. So good reading, Tomites. I'm on the wall.